Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high-income earners come to learn wealth-building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth-building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into another episode of the Money Insights Podcast, where we talk all things money and business. My name is Christian Allen. I'm here with not one, but two co-hosts today. I have my usual co-host and partner in crime, Rod the Pod Zabriskie. Rod, what's up, my friend? Hey, hey, I'm glad to be here, and I'm excited to have our guest That's number two. That's right. We have co-host number two, Brennan McConnell. Brennan's uh, been with us for two a couple years, the Money Insights team, and today he gets to join the show. So, Brennan, thanks for being on. We're excited to have you, man. Rod, Christian, thanks for having me. Even though this is my first time on the show, it feels like we've been on many shows together. <laughs> it's true. We've been you teasing you a long time. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you know, like that's Brennan's way of saying that he listens to the show. And so we just like have that connection, right? That's right. Yep. <laughs> okay. I feel very well connected. Well yep. <laughs> well, I'm just glad we finally have some wisdom on the show because today yeah. we're going to do our money insights with money insights episode. And just as a quick reminder, the idea there is that we send out email, a couple emails to get questions back, and then we'll answer those questions on air. So um, we are excited that we finally have a tool that can take audio slash visual questions. And we actually did get a couple of those. So we're going to hit on those today. Uh, but we're still finding that more people tend to like to send in their written questions. So we'll take either kind. We'll take either kind and we'll answer both. So uh, without further ado, fellas, should we jump into our Money Insights with Money Insights episode? Absolutely. Let's do it. Okay. Question number one. Question number one is from our friend Scott. And Scott was kind enough to kick us off with a video question. So Rod, give us Scott. All right. Hi, Christian and Rod. My name's Scott. I'm a longtime W2 earner. My eyes have recently been open to the world of passive investing and alternative wealth creation strategies outside of the stock market. And I'm a big fan of the Money Insights podcast. So thank you. As I look to build wealth for my family now and in the future, I'm often faced with a choice in my passive investments to either invest in value add opportunities or those more focused on cash flow. My question is, what if I want both? Do you have a framework you could share for how to think about the balance between cash flow investing? and value add appreciation investing. Thanks. Scott, that is an excellent question. And thanks so much for sending it in. We actually did a podcast episode about this. I'm trying to remember what we called it, Rod, but it was the idea was appreciation versus cash flow. And yep. if you remember, I won that debate as the the appreciation mm. side of it. Is that how that went? You remember that? <laughs> I was remembering it differently okay. somewhat. Okay, maybe not. But here's the thing. it was a, It's a really good question. And especially right now where cash flow investments are so hard to find. So anyway, Rod, I thought you had a really great framework for talking about this. Why don't you kind of tell Scott the way you think about it? Yeah, my answer is everyone's favorite, that it depends. Oh, don't say that. I mean, You're going to give us more is, though. No, no, yeah. The framework is... Uh, that it's, you want to align what you're doing with where you are in life. So for example, I'll use myself. Right now, I am less worried about cash flow than I will be in the future. So my ultimate goal is to get to a place where I can replace my working income with my passive income, right? That, that's the whole kind of model. Um, 
but I'm not at a place right now where, where I'm as worried about it. And even though I have a, a way to capture the cash flow that I am creating on my investments and put that through my investment optimizer, build it back up, loan out, go and do it again, that whole strategy. I, I'm not as worried about it. I'm, I, in some ways it's, it's even kind of a pain to, to create cash flow that, that I have to mess with if I can instead focus on more of the appreciation of, of investing. Okay. So that's, that's my thoughts and kind of how I do that, the framework that I'm basing it off of. Um, but I do have another thought and that is where he was saying he wants to do both. If you are mm-hmm. in a place where you want to create that cash flow, maybe take ease the pressure on your regular working income or, mm, or for yeah. whatever reasons that may be. I mean, I think we could pull our, our clients and find out that a lot of them who are investing in things that create a lot of cash flow are also seeing a lot of appreciation in those investments. And so when they have opportunities to refi or sell, then that there's they're still seeing really good returns on those investments. And so I, I think you can get it to have the types of investments where you can do both really well. So I think what you're saying, Rod, and and I think this is not, not think, this is definitely true. Like if we look at a syndication over the last 10 years, if you've been with a you know good company, then you're seeing both of those things come through with insignificance, right? You're getting cash Absolutely. flow, getting huge appreciation. Um, but I think Scott's question is really good because that is changing to some extent, right? The cash flow is more and more difficult to find. And so I like your thought though. The question is, do I really need it? Um, right now. And if I do, then, well, I better figure out a way to balance and get some of both. But but if not, I can put that off for 10 years or whatever the time frame is that I'm wanting to um, start creating that or, or not creating, but taking that as income. Yeah. Okay. Good thought. Okay. Uh, good question. Second question. I'm going to read this one for you, Brennan. Uh, let's see. This is Greg in Alabama. Greg says, I have a 401k in my office. I'm the sole owner. I contribute $800 a month and match $300 a month. Should I stop it and change to your plan? All right. Pretty simple and straightforward. What do you think, Brendan? Yeah, this is a great question uh, from Greg here. So I think it's uh, important to quickly note that when Greg says that he gets a match, that matches in quotations, right? Because he's actually matching it himself. Um, It's his own business. Yeah. Yeah. It's his own business, right? So uh, typically one of the the strong factors of a 401k or the strong benefits of a 401k is the fact that you get an employer match. And so in this case for Greg, that is diminished a little bit. Um, He still gets to participate or um, I guess not participate in the taxes that he puts into the 401k, which is a nice benefit. However, my short answer to Greg is that yes, you should, should switch. Uh, And more specifically, you should look at capital avalanche in replacement of your 401k, Uh, mainly because let me give you a few few reasons here, Greg, mainly because you get uh, tax free growth and you're able to access your dollars tax free. Uh, You're much more liquid inside of the capital avalanche structure, whereas a 401k plan, it's qualified plan. So uh, you shouldn't touch that till fifty nine and a half. And then in addition to that, you can structure it as an executive bonus plan, or you can also look at different golden handcuff strategy if you have employees that you're trying to look around. So there's a lot of really great things you can do with it. Mm, nice. Super flexible in comparison to dealing with the 401k and all that comes with it. Um, and I would say this, you also get real leverage, right? So, so he's matching his own money 
inside the capital avalanche, we're going to match match their money with bank money and not just match it. We're going to pump it full of bank money. Uh, and that makes a big difference. So, okay, good thought. Hey, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to let you know that you can take the F3 assessment right now over at moneyinsights.net. And after the short five minute assessment, you'll get specific recommendations that will help you move from high income to high net worth. Enjoy the rest of the show. Uh, number three, Rod, we have Beth. We actually have two questions from Beth. Can we get to, can we just do them one after another? Yeah. Okay. So let's do Beth's first question. And this one, oh, this one's for me. I'm excited to answer it. We're all excited to hear it. <laughs> hey guys, it's Beth. I have a pen mutual policy that I set up with you as part of the investment optimizer plan. My question is this. What happens if a policyholder lives past age 100? Able to take cash flow from the policy or does the death benefit still pay out? Okay, Beth, that is an excellent question and one that we definitely want to clarify. So here's the deal. The good news is, is that life insurance companies, while I wouldn't say they're progressive by any stretch of the, the imagination, however, they have at least realized that people live longer than they used to. And policies used to be played out to age 100. And now they generally go on a chassis that's to age 121. And as far as I know, people aren't living at the outliving the 121 number. So uh, that's the good news. The good news is if, I, if I'm age 100, I still have 20 years of the policy running. Now, if I got to age 121, um, what would happen is the policy would endow is ultimately what happens. And you have the death benefit and cash value basically matching. So if I, if I defied time and lived to 121 at that time frame, I would get the full death benefit slash cash value paid out to me all at once. They're going to congratulate you for living so long. Here's a check. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for that question, Beth. Do Rod or Brennan have anything to add to it? Pretty simple, right? Yeah, I think so. Don't worry about outliving your policy. That's kind of the bottom line. Okay, let's go into Beth's qu second question, which is for Brennan. Hi, Rod and Christian. I have a question for you guys about my Penn Mutual policy. I have a policy that I set up with you guys about four years ago through the investment optimizer plan. The policy is mainly for cash flow and not necessarily for the death benefit. When we originally set it up, we set it up to be a five-year play. And after five years, I would stop contributing to the plan and the death benefit would decrease. My question is, if I continue to fund it seven years, 10 years, et cetera, because I'm not ready to quit working yet, what is the optimal time for the policy to be most efficient? Is it the five years that we originally set it up for, seven years, 10 years, or the more the merrier? I just was unsure if there's an optimal time to stop and redirect funds elsewhere. Thanks, guys. Bye. Okay, Beth, that is an excellent question. And it's one that we get from time to time. So we're glad that you asked it. Brennan, why don't you take it for us? Yeah, as far as an optimal funding time frame, four years is going to be where you hit your optimal funding. And that's regardless. And when I say four, I mean, you want to fund at least four years. And then after that, 
every year you fund, it's going to be optimized and extremely efficient moving forward. So um, as long as you're continuing to invest and you're planning to invest in, you know, whatever it is you're investing in real estate, businesses, uh, syndications, then you should funnel those dollars through the investment optimizer policy first uh, and then pull those funds out to invest just like we teach. Um, and so as long as you're planning to invest, continue to fund it. Once you get to a place where you're done and you're kind of slowing down, we call it more traditional retirement. A lot of people don't like the word retirement, but I'm going to use it in this context. Then we can uh, utilize those funds for a few different reasons, but I'm going to get to that later on in the podcast. Okay, excellent. So basically, if I heard you right, Brennan, as long as you fund it enough, as long as we put enough money into it, then the policy is going to be optimized. And from there on out, it's just a matter of every dollar I put into it will be optimized similarly as the dollars that I put in before. Is that fair? Yes, absolutely. Sometimes people come to us and ask us if they should stop funding a policy to start a new one. Um, and in this case, we wouldn't want to do that because we've already overcome all the costs that come with an insurance policy during those mm. first couple of years. So it makes zero sense to start another one unless you get to a point where you need to fund more dollars in on a yearly basis. So let's say you started a policy for $100,000 a year and now you're at a place you had a lot of cash flow coming off or your income increased. You wanted to be funding $200,000 a year into investments then we should look at a new policy, but we would never stop funding the original one. Mm, nice. That's, that is super important. And we see it all the time. So if someone um, suggests that you stop to fund a different policy, you can know that that's uh, not a good idea. And like, like Brennan said, we've already paid every, we paid the cost in it. So, so we don't want to have to do that again, unless, unless there's a reason to more money. Okay. Let's move into, so those are all of our audio questions. So let's move into question number five. This one's for you, Rodney. Okay. Um, and this is from Sean in California. It's a good question. So he asks, why are banks willing to loan money on life insurance? And how do banks view cash value life insurance when I'm applying for a loan? Okay. So kind of a two twofer. Yeah. You got a, you got a double, man. I'm jealous. <laughs> yep. Yep. Okay, so the first one, why are banks willing to loan money on life insurance? And specifically, what Sean is referring to is either on the investment optimizer side, where we loan against our policies to go out and invest, we can set up a cash value line of credit with an outside bank and, and loan my money there. I'm using my cash value as the collateral for that loan. And, uh, and so why, why would banks do that? On the other strategy we have where we, where we do this is capital avalanche where the majority of the money going into the policy is actually coming from loans from the bank. Same idea, we're collateralizing the insurance cash value uh, for that loan, but it's kind of like right on the front end, we're taking that loan and using it to get the money into the policy. All right, so why would they do that? Yeah, why because, would they they, do because they love life insurance as an asset. Mm -hmm. So, And there are some specific reasons for that. There are a lot of guarantees associated. So, okay, actually, let me be really clear. With the specific types of insurance that we use, whole life and indexed universal life, there are a lot of guarantees, very consistent. The It's liquid. It's, it's a cash equivalent. So it's kind of like if I said, hey, I have this money over here in a CD. Can I use that as collateral and take a loan from the bank? And they're like, sign me up for that. Absolutely. Yes. When you compare that with other types of collateral, real estate, your car, 
a business, right? Assets inside of a business, not nearly as liquid as money sitting inside of a cash value of a life insurance policy. And so, uh, and so they love it. Yeah. Not okay. as liquid and not as safe. Right. Yep. So that's the first one. Second one, how do banks view cash value life insurance when I'm applying for a loan? So by this, I assume he's asking, I have life insurance policy, like the investment optimizer or cash or capital avalanche. And I'm going to get a loan to go buy a piece of real estate or, or in my business or for some other purpose. And I'm showing my ledger, my uh, assets and liabilities and everything so that the bank can qualify me for the loan. Well, they use they view it as a cash equivalent. So it shows on the asset side as a cash equivalent. If I had a loan against it, so let's say it's investment optimizer, I have whatever, 500000 in my policy and I have $200,000 loan outstanding, then it would actually show up as $500,000 on my asset side and 200000 on the liability side. Um, but the point is that they view it as a cash equivalent. And if you're ever working with a bank who doesn't see it that way, we're more than happy to help them see it. Every once in a while, not very often, but every once in a while we'll have a client reach out and say, hey, my bank's giving me some, some grief about this. Anyone who understands what it is does it exactly the way I just described it. If not, then you know, either go find someone who will do it or if you just really want to work with that lender, then let us know. We're more than happy to help them see what the, what the life insurance is all about. Yeah, because at the end of the day, they're getting the policy as collateral. And yep. so it's a, the safest collateral you could ask for. Yeah, and, okay. and anytime someone's uh, applying for a loan for a business, especially, they want life insurance on that person in case yeah, something happens true. to them. And good point. Well, it just so happens this comes with the insurance, right? Okay, Rod, that was a good answer. Um, thank you, Sean in California. Okay, this next one is from Bill in California. And he's going to get into a little bit that's probably a little bit outside our wheelhouse, but we're going to give it at least a, the old college try. Okay. So can you elaborate on structured notes, typical returns, and how to buy them? So I can at least elaborate on what a structured note is. So a structured note is a derivative. Uh, basically, it's a combo product. So here's a, here's a simple way to think about it. Let's just say I bought from an investment bank as an example. The investment bank says, okay, I'm going to sell you this note and it's going to guarantee your that you don't lose any money, right? Um, but we're going to give you 50% of the upside of the market. So basically what they're doing is they're giving you a note and they're deriving the value from some other methodology. In this case, it's I'm, I'm saying it's the market, right? But it could be anything. So, so in response to the question about like what returns should, should be expected, like I think it really just depends on the asset class. So the reason people go into structured notes is because they want to get into an area of the market that's maybe more difficult to get to. So they go in that like little niche area. Um, but because you can go in a hundred directions with structured notes, it's probably difficult to answer that. But I do have a couple other thoughts. Some of the risks to be thinking about when you're considering a structured note might be stuff like liquidity risk, um, credit risk. That just means from the issuing company. So if it's an investment bank, you don't want it to be Lehman Brothers right before they went out of business uh, because it is an unsecured asset. Uh, apparent risk. I read about this and I thought it was interesting. And that's just the idea that it seems more safe than it actually is. 
So just be aware of that. And then of course, there's some complexity and market risk that exists in there. So I'm not saying one way or another, whether it's good, bad or otherwise, but at least that hopefully sheds a little bit more light on there. And you can go to a lot of places to get it. A lot of brokers do it. Um, I know that like the crowdfunding places like Yield Street um, are also offering them. So there's some thoughts on that. Anything to offer, Rod or Brennan? You guys good? I'm good with your answer. Nice work. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. Sounds good. Thank you, Bill. That's a great question. The other thing is, is it uh, has inspired me to look for someone who has expertise in structured notes. So one of the one of these days, we'll hopefully get someone on there that has an, uh, an expertise in that and can give us a much more in-depth answer and be more helpful. Okay. Number seven, Rod, this one's back to you. And this is okay. from Patrick in Illinois. He says, how do cash value life insurance policies for children fit into strategies for passing wealth on to the next generation? Rod, why do you always get these doubles? It is a double. I think I should pull it and give it to Brent. I'm just kidding. Okay. <laughs> and part B of the question, is it better to have it in the child's name versus in the estate or the parent's name? Okay, perfect. Well, let's tackle number one. How do cash value life insurance policies for children fit into strategies for passing wealth on to the next generation? We have a few different uh, ideas on this, and we had a, we actually did an episode here a few weeks ago about multi generational legacy planning. Rod, that's where... been a few months. Your uh, your time's getting a little bit warped. That, probably your age. Yeah. <laughs> it's probably your age. Yeah, it wasn't just yesterday. Okay, no, it's, no, anyway, no, sorry, I didn't mean question. to derail you. You just retain so much. That's yeah, true. yeah, it just builds up. <laughs> so we have a few different approaches for this, and I, I think there may be two different ways that he may be asking this. The multi generational legacy planning is primarily for uh, for people who want to put policies on their adult children. People maybe in their 50s, 60s, 70s. They've built up enough. Uh, they feel comfortable that in retirement they're going to be okay they want to start setting stuff aside that's going to be really optimized to passing on to their their children when they move on and so using life insurance is really a good good way to do that the parents can actually retain ownership if they want to have that as a backup plan if they ever need to access the cash then they can but they would be the owners their adult children would be the insureds the policies are on the children they're funding those optimized in the same way that we do it with minimal cost, uh, maximized to growing the cash value. To whatever extent the parents don't use the cash, that passes on to their children when they've passed away. And now the children can use it in the same ways as that we talk about, right? They can access the, the living benefits in terms of loans out for investing. Uh, they can turn it into a tax-free stream of income and retirement it then becomes whatever is left when they pass away, the death benefit then passes on to generation number three, their children. And so it's just a really efficient way to pass money on from one generation to the next. So that's with, when it's adult children. When we talk about it in terms of, uh, of minor children, yes, we have a lot of clients who want to put policies on their children. In this case, it's usually some combination of college planning or like just wanting the children to have a, a head start when they get to adulthood and they're going to buy their first home or, or kind of get started in life and they want to be investing and using the same kinds of strategies as like the investment optimizer, then they've already been building some money up in there. They've been teaching their children how to use those strategies. And so then 
the kid's name is on the policy. They, they pass that on. They're, they're using it to go out and do their investing. So it's a really good tool in addition to all the other cool things that, that the parents are doing for their children uh, to, to pass along in that way. Okay. So Rod, the way I think about this is that having life insurance on adult children can be an extremely effective, right? That's the concept of multi-generational mm -hmm. legacy planning. Yep. Um, when you're talking about minor kids, there's just not enough room to really have an effect on an estate, right? So yeah. um, let's say that I can, you know, I might only be able to get $8,000 on the policy. And so, you know, it, from an estate planning perspective, it's probably not going to have a huge impact. Um, so the real, really the only way to have a significant impact is by having them on the adult children. Is that fair to say? Right. Yeah. From that wealth transfer. From the wealth transfer. Absolutely. Now, whether it's better to have in the child's name or the estate, well, maybe hit on that, Rod. Yeah. This one usually comes down to how I'm going to fund it or how I want to, how, how I want to have it treated from a gift standpoint. Because mm -hmm. for example, if, if it's the one you just gave $8,000 a year and the policy isn't owned by me directly, when I gift that 8,000, it's under the annual tax gift tax exclusion. And so I don't have to worry about any kind of gift tax uh, implications. Whereas if I put the $8,000 a year into it for the next 20 years, and then when I turn it over to my child, it's worth $200,000 today that would obviously be above the gift tax exclusion which is for a couple about 30,000 uh and so then it's not that all of a sudden i have to pay mm -hmm. a tax today but it goes against my lifetime estate tax exemption and so that obviously could have an impact on later down the line with with estate taxes so mm, yeah that's a good point owning it now the child can't have it in their name while they're a minor right they can't enter into a contract but you can set it up inside of a trust or what they call an utma or ugma universal mm, transfer to minors act universal gift fun acronyms. minors act all that kind of stuff um so it you're basically setting up a structure that can own the policy that's not you um and you and you just build in the instructions with the trust so that the money gets passed on to the kids in in however form you determined ahead of time Okay. Excellent. Um, clear as mud, Rod. Thank you for that. Sweet. I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, that was actually, that was clear. Uh, um, I think it was super helpful. Okay. Brennan, we're up to you. Wow. Let me start that again. <clears throat> okay. Brennan, let's hit on number eight. And this one is coming from Janil in California. He says, what happens with the funds in my investment optimizer policy when I'm no longer investing? And that's a really great question. Brennan. Yeah, it is a great question. So this is this is kind of fun. So there's a few different ways that you can utilize these funds. Uh, you've been utilizing it for uh, your opportunity fund, flowing money in and out to invest in different deals. And now you've built up this really large account with all of these dollars in it. Now what do we do? Um, <clears throat> one of the ways we can use it is just turn it on for a stream of tax-free income and start taking uh, a specified amount every single year, essentially in perpetuity. Uh, another way you can utilize it is just as your slush fund. So anytime you need extra dollars, whether it's to, you know, buy a vacation home or a new car or, or whatever it may be, you can utilize it there. Uh, you can also use it as a volatility buffer to help extend the life of your market-based assets. So let's say you have 
you know, a variety of 401k or IRA or brokerage accounts out there that are all uh, at the whims of the market. Well, when the market goes down and we have a negative year, the year after that, instead of pulling more funds from our market-based accounts, you can utilize your and access the income from your investment optimizer policy and allow those other accounts to recover. And by doing that, you make those accounts last way longer because we're never selling at a, a negative year. Um, in addition to that, you can also use it. We have long-term care riders on almost all of our on all of our investment optimizer policy. There's going to be a long-term care rider. Uh, and then finally, if whether you use the policy as income or not, uh, you can also use it for estate planning purposes or estate taxes uh, upon upon your death. Man, Brandon, that was impressive. Rod <laughs> has taught you well. No, I'm just kidding. That was thorough. Nice work. Thank you. Um, I'm Kay. sure I'm making some ways. <laughs> okay, Rod, do you have anything to add? Well, not just, I mean, in answer to Brandon's little kind of quip there, really it's it's liquid. So you could just use it for anything you want. And so he was giving really good examples and the kinds of things that we see, yep. but you could do whatever you want. Go yep, to Vegas. Good. Go to Vegas. That's <laughs> Rod's advice. There you have it. Mark it down. Rod's <laughs> never been to Vegas himself, but he wants you to go. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> That's funny. Okay. Number nine. Um, this is our last question, I think, right? For today. Yep. So Bill from California asks, what's the difference between premium finance and private placement life insurance? So first off, we'll just be really quick and easy on the private or on the premium finance side. That's where we're having a bank fund all or a portion of the premiums for us. So as an example, the Capital Avalanche is a premium finance design where I as the policyholder put in the first premium and then I now have the bank who's going to come in and they're going to make all of the premium payments from there on out. That's a premium finance design um, and really it just means money coming from the bank. The second question here is what's private placement life insurance? Uh, and this is a little bit more unique. We don't hear about it as much because it's offered on a private basis. It's not generally offered by large life insurance companies. Uh, but what it is, is it's a universal life chassis, which uh, I shouldn't say that. It's a variable universal life chassis. And maybe to create some context for that. Okay, there's four types of life insurance. We have universal life. We have index universal life. We have whole life and we have variable universal life. So because these are actual assets invested in the market, right? It could be a hedge fund. It could be any highly appreciated asset that someone expects to, to, to gain value. Um, the goal is for that to be inside the life insurance wrapper to take advantage of the tax benefits. And if you remember the tax benefits of life insurance are significant, as long as I have that highly appreciated asset growing inside the policy, I'm never paying taxes on it. And I have the ability to borrow against it. And so there's some kind of unique things that I can do by utilizing private placement. It's generally in the ultra high net worth area. We get into it here and there. But anyway, hopefully that's a helpful comparison between premium finance and private placement life insurance. Well okay. done. Whoa, that was a doozy, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> okay, so Bill, that's a really great question. We appreciate everybody who brought questions in today. We also appreciate our guest co-host, Brennan, for bringing the wisdom to the show. So thanks, Brennan. We appreciate it, man. When thanks are you coming back? Me. Yeah, absolutely. 
No, no. When, when are you coming back? <laughs> When's the next uh, Insights with Money Insights? Okay, good right. question. Good question. Okay, so <laughs> we'll find another time and get Brandon back, but we appreciate him. Rod, it's been fun. Thanks, everybody, for listening to the Money Insights podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.